From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the big news today concerns our relationship with Europe, the disruption caused by the shutting down of the cross-channel route because of the emergence, of course, of the new variant of the virus here. But many see the chaos that resulted as a bit of a dress rehearsal for what's likely to happen in just 10 days' time if the UK leaves the EU without a trade deal, as seems increasingly likely. But as far as today's disruptions concerned, Boris Johnson says he's working as quickly as possible to end the chaos at Dover, Britain's busiest port. Dozens of countries are now restricting flights from Britain as well. And on Brexit, well, the EU seems to have rejected Boris Johnson's latest push for a deal. With a new offer to the EU on fishing, sources told Bloomberg the UK offered to compromise on access to fishing waters if the EU would compromise elsewhere, and the latest suggestion would see the EU reduce the value of the fish it caught in UK waters by about a third. Last week, the government had been insisting the EU accepted a 60% cut, but to this latest offer, the EU says no. But despite the ongoing chaos at British ports, Boris Johnson is warning the UK is still able to walk away without a deal. The UK uh, has got to be able to control uh, its own uh, its own laws uh, completely, and also that we've got to be able to control our own our own fisheries. And uh, uh, and it remains the case uh, that WTO terms uh, would be uh, more than satisfactory uh, for the UK. So Boris Johnson, the man at the centre of two rather acute storms. What's at stake? Well, joining us now is Bloomberg UK politics and Brexit reporter Joe Mays. Joe, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us again. Um, First of all, let's take the issue to do with the virus, the new variant, the lockdown, if you like, from Europe in terms of, of travel. We're blockaded, in a sense, from Europe, and that's having a huge effect, of course, on supply chains. Is there any sense that uh, the chat that Boris Johnson says he had with President Macron of France yesterday has resulted in any kind of scheme to bring this to an end? Well, the government is being quite guarded, really, about how those talks are going. All we are saying is that discussions are continuing with France and that they are working on solutions which we think might involve a form of testing drivers at the border to see if they have 
uh, the virus. And there are discussions about what kind of tests will be used. Will it be one of the quick turnaround tests or will it be those that take, say, 24, 48 hours to come back? Our sources are telling us that the UK is pushing for the quick test and the, fr- the French are want to see that longer test uh, being used. And you can see why there's this group in there. The UK clearly wants to open this border up quickly and is preferring those, those quicker tests. So we still wait to see whether we get some kind of agreement on that. We could get something by, uh, by today or it could come in, in the coming days. And there are signs that there might be a Europe-wide policy on all this because uh, it does seem to be an EU issue as much as anything. We know already there have been uh, transport arrangements have been suspended with many countries and, and the UK. But do you think there's going to be a kind of Europe-wide Clamp down, if you like, that, that will make Britain isolated even before Brexit comes on board. I think there'll have to be a consistent policy amongst the EU member states, and that's very likely what the EU will do here. You know, as we're saying, we have more than 40 countries now worldwide who've imposed some form of ban or restriction on arrivals from the UK because of this mutant strain of the virus, which we know is more transmissible, which we know can yeah, spread more easily, and that makes it something that. European countries don't want to have in their borders. I mean, it may be the case that that strain of the virus is already in the EU, but they, they want to take, you know, every precaution here to limit that spread. And that's why we've seen these restrictions put in the UK. And as you say, it adds a lot of pressure to the UK in these Brexit negotiations and shows, if anything, what can happen when the borders do clog up as they are now. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, one of the things I heard uh, along the grapevine in this was that uh, British officials and indeed politicians were a little bit surprised at the um, ferocity, if you like, or or extremeness of uh, the reaction to this virus news and, and did see it as a kind of perhaps a dress rehearsal for what we could be going through soon. I mean, are you detecting that note from, from the UK government? Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing that no minister is yet wanting to say publicly, but we do get the sense kind of behind the scenes that there is a view which says this is perhaps in part related to Brexit and kind of flexing of the muscles on the, on the French side and the EU side, and, yeah, it providing an indication of what happens when things snarl at the border. And so you can see that perhaps there's a negotiating leverage thing going on here. And, indeed, I was speaking to a civil servant in the Department of Transport today, and, and they were telling me that this has been essentially like a dry run for Brexit. And, if anything, that could be quite helpful to the UK side, I mean, allowing them to stress test their contingency plans. So it, it does seem like these things are linked. And, uh, yeah, we'll just see whether we get an agreement on the freight movement and, indeed, on whether we're getting a trade deal. It's all coming together at one time. Well, indeed, that was my sort of next point, really. I mean, you know, the contingency planning, all that contingency seems to be uh, becoming ever more real. We had this offer from Boris Johnson's side. I mean, many people thought this was, you know, quite a, an interesting move, that at this late stage he throws uh, a new fish onto the table, as it were, and uh, an EU doesn't seem to have picked it up, if anything, quite the reverse. Are we still in a moment where everyone has to take the harsh position in order to get a bargain in the end? Or is everyone really thinking, actually, this is simply not going to happen? It's a no deal, almost inevitably. I think we are at that moment where both sides still taking pretty strong stances. As you say, the UK showing a concession on fish. But I think there's still a tiny bit of time still left, which allows both sides to kind of not make that ultimate compromise. But I think that the UK side wants a deal in place so it can bring Parliament back, say, December 30th, which means that probably our time window now is today, tomorrow, perhaps Christmas Eve, and then, you know, that's why we'll probably see the final deals be done if they are to be done. I think the UK move today does show a clear willingness to get this deal over the line and that the so-called red lines the UK has had on fishing 
are probably perhaps not as red as we thought they were necessarily. But clearly, on the EU side, the mandate Barnier is given here is very strict from those um, those those fishing ministers of those coastal uh, of those countries which have coastal communities that will be affected. So, will the EU make that final step? I think they probably will, but we still aren't quite there yet. Well, Joe, it's really interesting what you were saying there about the red lines on the UK side moving, because uh, I was talking to your colleague uh, David Merritt yesterday on this programme. We were talking about the pressure that's on Boris Johnson, of course, from his own backbenches, uh, not only obviously in dealing with the virus, but also still on Brexit, the, the hardline Brexiteers, the ERG still there, the theory being that they have letters in their pockets calling for a change of leadership if he flinches at this point. But is there a sense that right at this 11th hour, he might be willing... Uh, to, to, to chance that in order to get a deal, just because the combined pressures of the lockdown and potential no-deal Brexit are probably just too much? I think he will. I think that there aren't enough MPs on his backbenches to have such a strong concern around fishing, for example, that they would be enough to kind of to, to vote the deal down. I mean, we know that we, we very much expect the Labour Party to support Johnson on a Brexit deal. So the question is, are there enough Tories for him to be able to say, look, I got this through with the support of my party. I think there probably would ultimately be, unless the ERG and the backbenchers feel like the compromise that's done on the level playing field and fish is so egregious they'd have to vote against it. I think there'll always be some who will vote against it because they're kind of exceptionally principled and almost theological about the Brexit issue. Um, but I think Johnson probably thinks he can just about do enough to get enough of people on side for him to, to get this through. I think that'll be his calculation. Now, you're right, this is definitely what number 10 is thinking about, and this will be how, how they will present the deal, how they'll communicate it. They'll be, doing, they'll be doing work right now behind the scenes, kind of trying to reassure people this will be the next battle for Johnson if he gets it over the line. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, is his leadership in question in that area? You know, we've heard this talk about the, the letters that are prepared to go in, but within the party, is, are there question marks about his leadership, really? It's hard to say, given that what people, what MPs and ministers will say to you kind of behind closed doors is perhaps different to what they'll say on the record. And it's hard to tell how how true they are when they say, oh, you know, his days would be numbered, you know, his, his, his premiership would be fatally sabotaged if he were to get the Brexit deal through on Labour votes. It is hard to say. I think that, as I was saying, there is a lot of strong feeling about the Brexit issue in the party and so he, he cannot take this for granted and when you factor in the response to the, the pandemic and some of the concern there's been about how number 10 has been run as an administration, concern that Johnson uh, over-promises under-delivers, all these kinds of things have kind of built together to create a, yeah, a sense of unease amongst many in the party and I think Johnson will be concerned that Brexit could tip some of those over into, like you say, sending in letters to the 1922 committee, calling them to go yeah, he's, he's well aware of this threat. And at the same time, what's always been interesting is the overlap in some areas between the ERG and uh, uh, the NRG, the, or, the, or the, 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 the various RGs that are out there reflecting some of the feeling about him not supporting the North enough, about him imposing too much in the way of lockdowns. It's maybe the libertarian wing, I guess, of the Tory party, but they are still a minority, aren't they? Yes, they are. And I think Johnson has that majority of the party behind him who do support these restrictions. They understand the need to prevent the NHS being overwhelmed by hospitalizations and surging infections and cases rising. So I think that, yes, there are votes, there's a vocal minority in his party who are making, making this case. But Johnson at this point in time is, is sticking with the scientific advice, 
and going. I think essentially with the country, I think the country, broadly speaking, is supportive of what you know the need for these restrictions. I think a lot of the concern is about how it's been communicated, how decisions have been put off, which could have come in earlier. That's what's causing a lot of upset I think, yeah. in the country, and that is creating uh, ill feeling in the party. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Now, British companies have been warned by the Data Protection Authority here that their data transfers with the European Union may be at risk after Brexit. Now, EU officials are working on a so-called adequacy decision, which would allow personal data to continue to cross the channel when Britain leaves. Elizabeth Denham, who's the UK's Information Commissioner, says, as we don't know what the outcome will be from the EU, there's an even bigger need for businesses to prepare now. Without a decision from the EU by the end of the year, endorsing UK privacy protections, companies would be thrown into a kind of legal limbo. Now, Toyota is going to halt production in the UK and France from Tuesday. The company says it's due to transport delays as a result of the closure of the borders with the UK over the new variant of the virus. The border closures have disrupted the transportation of parts, said the Toyota spokeswoman Shino Yamada. Toyota's plan to close its plants in the UK and France from December the 24th for Christmas anyway, but it will now uh, stop activities two days earlier than planned. Toyota plants will resume operations here on January the 5th. And the number of Britons working from home is increasing. Employees entering offices in major cities here fell to 21% of February's numbers last week from 29% a week earlier. Now, the data comes from Metricas, which is a company that installs overhead sensors in office buildings to measure indicators such as occupancy rates and air quality. Government advice currently is to work from home where possible, while recognising that is largely impossible in some areas, of course, like the construction industry. Now, the terms woke and cancel culture, they're pretty familiar as part of the wider cultural and political climate of the time. Some say intense awareness of minority rights has morphed into intolerance and censorship of anyone who thinks differently or even doesn't express sufficient solidarity with enough vehemence. Others say it's a necessary rebalancing of a world of microaggressions and overt injustice. Well, one main battleground is issues of race and gender, and someone who's written about this in a widely hailed book is Helen Pluckrose. She wrote, of, wrote a book called Cynical Theories, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. Very successful book in 2020, the top of many bestseller lists. And she joins me now. Helen, welcome to the program, and thank you for being with us. Just take us through the thesis in your book in the sense of what you think has gone wrong and why. Okay, so... In a cynical series, we're taking a very specifically theoretical look at, at the ideas. And um, we think some ideas about knowledge, power and language that were rooted in postmodernism have evolved into what is currently colloquially called um, wokeness. So there's this idea that um, power 
um, construct knowledge. The people who have the power get to decide what is true and what isn't. And then this is um, understood as general knowledge by the general population. And we all speak into it without even realising we're doing it. And uh, we perpetuate injustices like white supremacy, patriarchy and transphobia just by the way we speak. So the the people who are critically conscious or have uh, or are woke are the ones who can see these systems of power and privilege and are trying to get the rest of us to see them so we can fight them. And um, this battle really takes place on the level of language, what we can and can't say. But, 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 I mean, on the surface, it seems to me that that reflects a kind of reality. That The, the fact is we do use certain terminology uh, culturally, uh, which does perpetuate views of the world, views of our fellow humans, that often is unfair. Yes, and it, it certainly isn't the critical social justice people who are the first to notice this. This whole idea that um, language is powerful, that culture has a strong impact and it is central to liberalism. This is where the marketplace of ideas comes from. The idea that we use our language to examine and critically think about ideas and discuss them and try to decide which ideas are better. That's the liberal approach. So the um, woke approach, the what we call the reified postmodern approach, is very different. It believes that we have to shut down certain kinds of speech and promote other kinds of speech. So that is a different approach to language rather than a greater recognition that it's how we understand things. Well, let me make an obvious point here, which is if someone came uh, was at a public forum and started uh, talking about how the Jews are responsible uh, for much of what has gone wrong in the world and it's a conspiracy um, uh, right across the world to put down people. I mean, you know, we wouldn't sit and listen to that calmly and debate well, we it, would we? we? Well, I hope we certainly would, and that's how um, anti-Semitism has largely been defeated. Um, Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rausch, himself a Jew, um, writes about how anti-Semitism was defeated um, largely on the level of ideas by arguing with it. However, to the um, critical social justice people, they would probably look at Jews as a largely privileged group of mostly white people, and so not really consider criticism of them as a social justice issue. And anti-Semitism is, in fact, um, one of the problems um, that is being exacerbated. All right, well, let let me move on to a different area then, perhaps, which where we know. So issues, for example, of gender or of sexuality. Um, If someone Mm -hmm. we were debating with said that, that as a starting position, they thought that gay people... Uh, had no rights, did not have the right to to define themselves in that way, were not, in fact, full human beings, perhaps. Again, could you really just rationally argue with someone who undermines the existence of of certain individuals? In a way, it isn't a level playing field, is it? Yeah, I I think you certainly can argue with them. I don't think um, pretending it doesn't exist or telling them to shut up or punishing them for having um, terrible ideas is going to work as well as showing them why it's terrible ideas. And that's something I was doing long before um, I was addressing these issues because I focused on religion and Christianity and Islam particularly have some fairly homophobic ideas. So 
I think the reason that homophobia has reduced so much is because we've been able to argue with it. And I bring you back again to Jonathan Rauch, who is a gay Jew, and makes um, the same arguments again. But, but, but again, I suppose the point is that there's an element of offence here, that if, when I'm arguing with you, I also undermine your very basis of argument because I don't consider you fully human or, or that you don't have the same rights as me. That is, that's yep. offensive at a very basic level. And, and is, it, is it right to normalise that kind of, well, hate speech uh, by no. arguing with it in a normal way? Uh, well, I don't think that does um, normalise it. If you were to tell me, for example, that as a woman, I shouldn't be arguing with you because I'm intellectually inferior and you are um, superior as a, a man, then I would argue with you very, very strongly about this. And I think that anyone looking on at the end of this conversation would have a greater confidence in my position and a lesser confidence in yours. But that may be because you're very good at arguing rather than necessarily that your position is right. I mean, isn't there an element of, of saying that this is, for a lot of people, they feel offended, they feel undermined, they may not have the articulacy necessarily to, to joust with people in this way, but they're undermined by people making these views public and in a way normalising them. Well, I don't agree that arguing with views normalises them. I, I think that it's quite evident that between the 60s and the 80s, um, in the liberal time of um, gay pride, civil rights movement, liberal feminism, what people did was argue with bad ideas. And this is how we saw so much progress happen so quickly within that time before this um, postmodern approach um, even took off, which happened in around 1990 when um, queer theory and intersectional feminism and um, the other uh, sort of studies in that area started taking a very socially constructed approach. I still maintain that the liberal um, approach of, of arguing with bad ideas is better than the woke approach of shutting them down. But it doesn't mean everybody has to argue with every idea. I, um, I'm not going to argue with flat earthers. And generally, if somebody tells me that ah. um, as a woman I'm inferior, I'm going to ignore them because I know that culture isn't with them on that. Well, that's an I, interesting I point. My if, let me pick up on that very briefly. So there are there are people who are outside the circle who are beyond the pale. There, there's certainly ideas that are. There are, but they got there not because we tried to shut them down, but because we beat them. We didn't ban people from talking about alchemy, phrenology or, the, or flat earthism. We just showed it to be um, really very silly and, and not work, and now they're not taken seriously anymore. So that, that's enough. And the same in terms of, very briefly, on the Black Lives Matter. If you have a statue to someone who oppressed black people, you keep that statue up. That's okay, uh, because it surely causes offence. I'm, I'm very, very neutral on the subject of, stat of statues. Statues are historical. I don't really care if someone throws a, a statue of a slave trader into the sea. That's also a historical event, and we will remember the time the statue of the slave trader went into the sea and why that happened. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a, a liberal lefty, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm not... Um, going to defend the sanctity of statues. Um, it's more about people. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.